Get Up Nation. I hope you're enjoying the Get Up Nation podcast on www.anchor.fm. As a podcast host on over 20 platforms, I really enjoy how easy it is to use Anchor, how Anchor makes everything I need available in one place for free, accessible on your smartphone or desktop computer. Go to www.anchor.fm now. In case you didn't know, Anchor has creation tools that allow you to record and edit each episode. If you're concerned about the distribution of your hard work, don't sweat it because Anchor takes care of that too. If you're considering becoming a podcaster, I would highly recommend Anchor as your choice to begin sharing your content with the world. What up, Get Up Nation? My name is Ben Biddick, the host of the Get Up Nation podcast and co-author of Get Up, The Art of Perseverance with former Major League Baseball player and CEO of Lurong Living, Adam Greenberg. Welcome to episode 16 of the podcast. I had the honor and privilege of speaking with one of the most phenomenal people I will ever meet for this episode. His name is Josh Weggy. He's a Marine Corps veteran of the Global War on Terror and is currently a member of the Wounded Warrior Amputee Softball Team. Not to be confused with the Wounded Warrior Project as the groups are not associated. Josh lost both of his legs in Afghanistan to an improvised explosive device that detonated under his vehicle. He refused to let the loss of his legs stop him from serving others and currently empowers young amputees to be confident and unashamed of who they are during events all over the country. I caught up with him just before he left on a snowboarding trip and had the honor of hearing his story, which I share with all of you here. It's worth the listen, especially if you need to hear about good people doing amazing things for others. Josh, you joined the United States Marine Corps right out of high school. Yeah, that's correct. I, I joined in 2008, graduated high school from Winnebago Lutheran Academy in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, and went straight in. I just kind of felt like it was my calling. I just was one of those kids that I didn't feel like college was right for me, not that I was a bad student or anything. I didn't know what I wanted to do in college, so I didn't, it didn't make any sense for me to go there, so I went straight in the Marines. In 2009, you deployed to Afghanistan. With What unit were you in? I was attached to 2nd NLER, but my company itself. We were headquarters battalion military company. Um, and I don't think it exists anymore. So I always just say second LER. Uh, it's out of Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. Will you share with us your experience overseas? Yeah, sure. So I, I got to Afghanistan in 2009. Right out of my training, the instructors came up to me and they told me, hey, you know, when you graduate here, you're going to be in Afghanistan within a month. They came with about three of us that were in my, my class and, and told us this. And we're like, oh, oh that's that's pretty soon. So the reality of that kind of sets in. And then it happened. I mean, a month after I got to the Fleet Marine Corps, which is like deployable status, once you get to a unit and everything, we were in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. And we got the, the call to go. I got an 18-hour notice and hopped on a couple of commercial flights, got over to Afghanistan. And I just remember, you know, being there and and kind of being the new guy, figuring things out. I mean, it was my first deployment, so I had a lot of things to figure out. Learned on the fly. I didn't get any of the pre-deployment training because of the timing involved. So it was something I just kind of had to learn as I went, uh, which probably wow. isn't the best place to do that. But, I mean, that's what we had to do. We needed bodies in Afghanistan. It was my turn to go. So uh, for about six months, my job was to train the Afghan National Police and the Afghan National Army. I'm actually a military policeman. We were there to train them how to use our weapon systems, how to patrol, how to shoot, all that stuff. And we had an incident with some of the guys that we were training where we needed to get some new guys. And where we were going to get those guys, I couldn't remain where I was. So we had to break my company into fire teams, just four-man team and pretty much spread us out across that southern Afghanistan. So my fire team, consisting of a corporal and 
couple other guys, we went up to a place called Camp Pain, and that's where we received our new guys to train, and we were attached to 2nd LER. Those are the guys that I was with, and they're really the guys that I I feel the brotherhood with. They were there when I got hurt. They were there in my darkest hours. They were they were my family. Uh, so we got these guys to train, but the thing is, they didn't have any supplies with them, so we had to travel out to a local bazaar or marketplace and get them stuff, you know, some blankets, food, rice, all the stuff that they needed to do the next two months or so, however long I was supposed to be there yet. And along the way, we hit a 200-pound IED. Uh, so the thing was set up like a pressure plate, so it acts kind of like a landmine, but it's 200 pounds of it. So we were in something called an LAV. It's a light-armored vehicle. That's what it stands for. And, uh, you know, as the name suggests, it's you know it doesn't have much armor on it. It's more of a tr- transport than anything, but it's an amphibious vehicle. If you've seen any, like, Marine Corps commercials where these these vehicles are, they look like little tanks come out of the beach water, or if you've been to like the Wisconsin Dells, you kind of know what I'm talking about. It's basically a vehicle that you can mount a cannon on top of it, but you know, it, we hit a 200-pounder, and it went right through the gas tank where I was sitting and took both my legs with it. I remember looking at my Navy corpsman, so the Marines, we don't have medical personnel with us. We look to our Navy since we're a department of the Navy to help us out, and I was staring directly at this guy when I got blown up, and nothing touched him. Uh, he had a concussion, but after the fact, I realized that was a blessing right there that our, our medical guy didn't get hurt. We were almost touching knees, and somehow the explosion got me and didn't get him. So he saved my life. He put two tourniquets on my legs before he even got out of the vehicle, and that, that saved me right there. I mean, I was obviously bleeding fairly well. I, I was missing limbs, um, but he put two tourniquets on my legs before he even got out of the vehicle, and I'm, I'm fairly certain that's what saved me. And then he put three more on each leg after I got out. So we were just laying there. And uh, so that's my uh, <laughs> that's my story with Afghanistan in a nutshell. Was he the one that was squeezing your hand? Was, or was that no, that, so he was actually working around me. So they pulled me out of the vehicle. The guy that was squeezing my hand, his name was Corporal Mathis. So we actually had two other guys get hurt. We had, I think, seven people in the vehicle, and three out of those seven got hurt. I took the worst of it. I lost my legs. We had a guy, there's a back hatch in the vehicle, like where, where the back doors would be and the back wheels. He was standing up when the explosion hit that side, and he basically shattered his entire, I mean, legs. So he broke every bone in his leg, so he kind of crumpled, and he, he actually made them carry me over him to get me out because he knew how badly hurt I was. And, you know, obviously that caused him a lot of pain, but he was the one that was next to me squeezing my hand. And I, I remember there was a couple people joking because he wasn't handling I mean, obviously, he was in pain. We are all in shock. And then uh, we had another guy named Sergeant Hart who, who uh, screwed up his knee a little bit and his shoulder and lost some hearing in his right ear. And he was on the far side, and we were all holding hands. And I remember they were kind of making fun of Mathis for uh, whining a little bit because I wasn't saying a word. Uh, <laughs> so there was there was some little you know humor even in that. Uh, and I tried kind of cracking jokes here and there. And the surprising thing is, I just remember, like, obviously it hurt. Uh, I mean, you, you don't want to go through that. But I remember looking at it and being like, wow, this should hurt a lot more than it does. So, I mean, we, we're, we're there just trying to be strong for each other, I think. Uh, and, and that's where the, the humor comes in. If you've ever watched, like, a military movie, you, you see some some of the dark humor kind of jokes they crack off. I mean, that's that's really how we survive it all and kind of make it more of a game than reality, I guess. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes that protects your mind. So. Yeah, so Mathis was next to me holding my hand, and then I had another guy come up to me that was part of the quick reaction force and give me his rosary. 
that I didn't necessarily remember until he reached out on Facebook not too long ago. So that was that was kind of cool. From that point, you wound up doing rehab at Walter Reed. Yes, there was a week-long medevac process. They kind of bounce you here and there throughout Afghanistan to get you to Iraq and then you go to Germany. Once you're in Germany and they feel you're stable enough, they'll fly you to the States. So that was about a week long. So I got hurt on October 4th of 2009. October 5th is where they, where they officially amputated my legs. I mean, they were gone. But uh, I got a call with my dad. And I remember that call. There's only, like, I, I, I know I remember it all. But there's parts that I, I can vividly remember. And there's parts that I know are just kind of fuzzy. And it's one of those things. If you uh, if you meet people and you talk to them and they knew you were there, it kind of unlocks a memory. It's it's weird how it works. I don't know if that's my body protecting itself or my mind, but uh, I do remember this call. And my dad, you know, I, when we were going through boot camp, there was a guy named Corporal Dunham who uh, jumped on my grenade to save his his buddies, but he survived the initial blast. And he was the only thing going through my head at this point in time. It's the next day. I'm I'm beat up. I'm hurting, and his story was running through my mind because he had a similar phone call to his parents and he said, Hey, nothing's going to happen to me until I see you again. And he basically made it to Germany. They flew his parents out to Germany. He saw them and later passed away. So, you know, as I'm talking to my dad, I'm like, Hey, you know, nothing's going to happen until I see you again. And so I had this promise in my head. They didn't know how hurt I was. They got a call that day when I got hurt that, Hey, your son's hurt. And it's his, his feet basically. They don't know if that means he's cut up or if he's had broken legs or if they're gone or if he's alive. So my family's kind of kept in the dark. They didn't know what the extent of the injuries were. But, you know, in my head, and I I know I'm kind of being dramatic looking back now because I'm here and alive and everything's good. But, I, you know, I thought I could die in any second. Uh, so I was trying to keep a promise to my family. And the one thing I wanted to do was see him again. So, you know, they got me back to the States. And I got to fulfill that, um, which is one of the most painful but uh, happiest memories of my life was watching my family come through the door. Your brother also moved in with you as you healed to help support you during that process? Yeah, he did. So I have, I have a twin brother, but uh, we're fraternal. Uh, we look nothing alike. And a, a crazy story about him, the day I got hurt, it was actually a Sunday morning uh, back here in the States. So my family, where they were going to go to church. And my brother woke up that morning and couldn't get out of bed. My mom, like, called down. She was making breakfast, and she's like, hey, Joe, get up. He's like, I can't because I can't wow. feel my feet. Uh, Are you so serious? Yeah, I'm serious, dead serious. Wow. He couldn't feel his feet that morning. Um, so I've never felt anything like that with him. You know, he's got – I always think I'm adopted because I don't look alike, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> that's my running joke with the family. But um, Joe and I definitely have a connection. He's my best friend. And when I got hurt, and he came through the room. He was the only one that didn't say anything to me. And he just kind of stood there like he was my guardian, my sentry. Uh, he just stood by my bed and didn't say a word. Uh, everybody eventually left and went to the – there's a hotel across from – it used to be Bethesda Naval Hospital. And they went there to go to bed, and Joe just stayed there, and they let him. And I just remember uh, grabbing his hand and being like, dude, this this really hurts. <laughs> And yeah. I kind of laughed a little bit, and he just he broke down. So we had a little brother moment. But from that moment on, he didn't he didn't leave. He he stayed with me the whole time, even when it was time to go home. He said, "I'm not going," and he stayed with me. So that was a uh, that was a pretty cool cool thing. I mean, for him to do that, you know, we've been buddy. It's almost like you know when you have a twin, you have like a built-in friend. 
or best friend, mm-hmm. however you want to call it. I know some people, obviously we fight, you know, we're brothers, whatever, but he stayed with me the whole time, never left my side. During this process, how did you get connected with the Wounded Warrior softball team? I went through my therapy, got my prosthetics, and just tried to regain whatever freedoms I thought I'd lost, you know, just like walking, running, all that stuff. And I remember going through that process and being like, wow, this is going to be a lot of hard work. But the biggest thing I had to really get over was this uh, this fear of, of failure, if that makes sense. I, I didn't want to go out and try something that I was able to do earlier and find out I couldn't do it. The crazy thing is, after I did all those things, if I was scared to do something, if I just went out and did it, I always, always said, wow, that was a lot easier than, than I thought it was going to be. And the crazy thing about it was my muscle memory was still there. I just didn't have, obviously, the muscle and the bone structure to do it. I just had to teach myself how to use a prosthetic. So once I felt comfortable, the team stuff kind of happened randomly. Uh, I was working out in the, we call it the MATC, it's the Military Advanced Training Center. The way it's set up, (laughs) there's uh, two floors. There's occupational therapy on the bottom floor, and there's physical therapy on top, but there's two glass hallways that people can walk through so it kind of looks like a like a zoo exhibit people would go through with tours and stuff and just kind of peek in and awe at us and as we're working out but it, it actually worked out in my favor this time because i was working out with ladder drills like football drills like quick feet you know you put the boxes down you do you know a series of uh kind of quick foot thing i don't even know what to call them but i call them ladder drills and it okay. you know it works it was working on my agility and the right guy happened to be walking by and saw it. He's like, he pulled me out to the hallway and he's like, hey, you know, have you ever played baseball? I was like, heck yeah. Uh, that was one of my, it was actually our, really our family sport growing up. You know, if you're a guy, you played baseball. If you're a girl, you played softball. So, you know, it was, it's always been a, a good family thing. And at Walter Reed, they had all these trips to go to Paralympic camps for like track and snowboarding and all that stuff. But they never had anything like baseball, softball. So, you know, I jumped at this chance and I got in contact with the guy that was actually running it. Gave him my name, told him my history about baseball, said I I definitely played before. Joe and I were actually captains of our baseball team our senior year. So I I told him and then I sent him some video of like me playing and figuring things out. And that secured me a spot to this camp that we were running. It was out in the University of Arizona. It was back in March of 2011. So this camp was just supposed to be chance like a weekend or a week i can't remember i think it was a week long maybe but it was a chance for guys to get out of the hospital or get out of their rhythm of life and just be with other guys that shared an interest in the game but also suffering an amputation as well so i met a lot of friends out there and when the week was done we're like hey man you know where do we go from here the guy that organized it and he's like well you go home because we don't have any funding to do anything else and this was like a va grant so this is all we got we're like well how do we fix that so we were able to raise enough money. His family had a, a golf outing, and we raised enough money to go to D.C. in 2011. And once we did that, played at the, the National Stadium. The media got a hold of it, and that kind of really is what created this team. Louisville Slugger made a significant donation. Is that correct? Yeah, so Louisville Slugger was our initial sponsor. We're not with them anymore, technically, but they okay. started with us for the first three or four years, I think. We actually went to Louisville Slugger, the factory, and they were amazing. <laughs> We basically walked in and said, hey, this is what we're doing. We're trying to do this camp, and we need equipment. You know, would you be willing to donate or give it at cost? And they basically took us into this room with full of gloves. And they're like, you know, don't pick up here. Don't pick from up here because this isn't our good stuff. Pick from down here. Like, this is our best stuff, and we'll give it to you. You know, so Slugger was amazing. 
we're currently with Mike and Worth right now, and they've they've stepped up the plate and, and done very well for us as well, and it's been an amazing thing. You do events right now all across the country, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So the way it kind of works out, I mean, we don't really pick where we go since we're. I mean, we have guys all across the country. There's about thirty five guys on the team, I think. And the reason we have such a big roster is because, you know, not everybody can make every single trip that we have. You know, we have an expanded roster because we got, you know, guys from all walks of life, some guys that are in school full time, some guys that work full time. You know, we're all across the country, so getting to somewhere is logistically a nightmare. But in order to come somewhere we need somebody that's willing to be our event coordinator or boots on the ground in that area. We wait and uh, let these people reach out to us, and that really determines the schedule, and we try to kind of chase the weather around the country as much as we can. Obviously, we can't play much here in the winter months, so I I have the burden of having to travel to, like, California or Florida in January and February, you know, so it's a rough life. There was a book written about this team by Steve Clairfield, right? The book is called Battlefield of the Ballfield, and Steve Clairfield wrote it. And it's a really a good story of how the team came about. It's actually got nine chapters of player bios at the end. I have the second player chapter in there, and then some of the original guys on the team. It's really their comeback story. That's how I like to put it. So you get some more insight on, on what they went through, where they were, and how they got hurt, and some of the other stories that were kind of tagged along with that. But, yeah, Steve, Steve was great with that. He was really able to capture our, my story. I know I can say that for sure. We talked earlier about the bonds that formed with other members on this team. You said that there was a process of physical healing, which was more rapid than the longer-term healing process that the team went through together. Can you describe over time what happened with the team? When we first started this team, it was really about giving back to each other. It was making sure you know, we were doing our buddy checks. Um, in the military, you know, you, you don't really leave anywhere by yourself. You, know, you have a buddy with you. And, you know, we call it a buddy system. So it was really about kind of doing that kind of stuff and just making sure, like, hey, you know, we made it through hell. We're back, transitioning back into military life or, uh, sorry, civilian life. I mean, the physical stuff is easy, you know, missing a limb, all that stuff. Yeah, it sounds horrible. And, yeah, I would obviously like my legs back, but, you know, it is what it is. This is the cards that I was dealt. And we don't feel sorry for each other, and we don't expect anybody else to do that as well. We only play against able-bodied teams. We're not going out and playing people with disabilities or amputations or anything like that. You know, we're playing police departments, fire departments, their teams, and we don't want anybody to sandbag or take it easy on us. We want a competition. You know, that's who we are. So this is a chance for us to kind of get back and prove that, hey, we're still us. You know, we're, we're I'm still Josh. You know, I'm not a broken version of Josh. I'm I'm me. And probably more determined than ever. Uh, once we got that point, you know, we're like, hey, we're we're good. What else can we do? It's the mental stuff that we really got to keep in check, you know, because like I was talking about earlier with my injuries, you know, I think some some of the things I forgot is maybe just my way of kind of protecting my own self. The mental stuff is is really the stuff that you got to worry about. You know, you hear stories of PTSD and all that stuff, but I really think this uh, this team gives that those guys an outlet we're surrounded by guys with two things in common we served in the military we were traumatically hurt we saw something that 19 18 20 year old kids shouldn't see we came back and we're here to not fix each other but at least be an outlet for each other everybody on this team they get along and they're able to confide or just make fun of or whatever you know whatever they have to do to 
to feel normal again, to feel competitive. Some of these guys lost motivation. They got back. They didn't really, they felt like they didn't have anything to work for anymore or achieve. And this, this just gave them kind of a new home. Uh, I know if you spend enough time in the military, the military's got a very strict way of doing things. And if you spend enough time in it, a lot of guys feel lost when they get out. It's just, it's completely different. You know, civilian sector is completely different than the way we do things in the military. You know, if they talk about a brotherhood, things are a certain way. There's a lot of structure. You know, when you get to the civilian life, there really isn't. I mean, there is structure, but it's not as as much as the military. So some people, when they get submerged into that, they feel a little lost. So this team is also a chance. It's almost like a mobile like BFW American Legion thing you know it's a chance for guys to get together and just you know, if we want to talk about something or you know swap war stories whatever it is it's a chance to do that but it's also a buddy system and you know we have 35 guys on the team if i haven't heard from somebody in a while i usually send you know send out a message or call them be like, hey man what's up how you doing haven't heard from you so we're always checking each other make sure everybody's okay it was such a simple concept of making a softball team but it, it turned into something much bigger than that a number of veterans that i've spoken with they describe the importance of finding a new mission during their post-military service where they lock into something significant and it gives them a renewed sense of meaning and purpose will you share how your involvement in this team became something even greater one of the things that i say is and this may sound a little weird but me getting hurt was probably one of the biggest blessings of my life uh, and the reason I say that is because, first off, it really allowed me to to find myself. Um, I was really unsure of myself beforehand, but you know I've I've been through a lot, and I know what I'm capable of. So it it, it instilled in me a new confidence. But it also gave me the chance to to find that mission, to to find something that you know is worth pouring your heart and soul into, and. It was really a side effect of what we did. You know, we formed a softball team. It was a way to check each other, make sure you're each other okay. But after we're done with that, we're like, hey, you know, we're good. What else What else can we do? How else can we serve? In 2013, we did our first kids camp. I thought it was a neat idea going in. I just, I remember this because I was a part of it. And you're like, hey, this is cool. You know, we're going to help these kids out that are just like us. And we, I had no idea what it'd be like. And it blew me away. We held it at Disney World in Orlando, Florida. We brought in 20 children who had suffered amputations through either birth accidents or sickness or whatever and got out there on the first day everybody's kind of shy but by the end of the week they all were friends it was very similar to what we had done in Arizona with our team we brought them together with just a game it might not have been a game they've ever played before or it might be a game they they do try to play but it was a chance for kids to get out and finally be treated like a kid for a change. They come in and some of them have been picked on. Some of them have been bullied. A lot of them have confidence issues. You know, they feel like they're different, but they feel, they feel like they're different in a bad way. Like <clears throat> there's something innately wrong with them. You know, sometimes parents put them in a little bit of a bubble because they're broken. Society says they're disabled. They can't do much. They don't expect much. What we get to do is we get to hang up our bats or cleats or gloves and just be mentors and coaches for the week. And we get to pop that bubble and teach them what they're capable of and hopefully instill into them this this ability to adapt and overcome whatever obstacle they, they come across. I mean, that's what we were taught in the military, adapt and overcome. The physical stuff is easy. You know, we, we figure it out. We figure out ways to get around it. But these kids, you know, they, they haven't been taught that lesson. They're still – sociology is taking effect – they're going out and interacting with other kids, and they may be treated differently, which isn't fair, but that's how people interact. So we get to mm-hmm. teach them kind of a life lesson in that, but really share with them a bigger and better community of people like them 
So there is no reason to make an excuse anymore. You know what other people are capable of. And we have this family now where people are in trouble or if they have problems, whatever it is, they have now somebody to reach out to. Mom and dad might try to teach their kid to tie their shoe or something like that. We have one guy on our team. His name is Greg Reynolds. He's missing his arm, his entire arm, like shoulder and all. And he has a one-handed tie shoe method. And one of our kids came out, and he was never able to tie his shoes by himself. He had a brain injury, and he just, his mom and dad were trying to teach him how to tie his shoes with two hands. And he just, for whatever reason, it didn't click. But uh, Greg taught him for five minutes, and he was able to finally tie his shoes for himself. So to make kids more independent and confident in who they are, but also share with them other people like themselves to make them feel normal for a change. You know, I thought it was neat going into it, but when I got out, I'm like, wow, this is exactly what I've been asking for. Now, this is this is my new mission, and this is really what fuels me to keep me moving forward. It's such an incredible thing, and I can talk about it, but until you go out and see it in action, I mean, it, it's incredible. Yeah. These are kids 8 to 12 years old, correct? Yeah, so the, the kids we bring in, we limit it to 8 through 12, and the reason we do that for safety reasons, you don't want an older kid hitting at a, a younger kid and hurting them. We have an 8 through 12, and they have to have an amputation. That's really the only two limitations we put on the camp itself. Once the kids come to camp, that's really their year, and then we have to kind of almost say goodbye to them for a little bit, uh, which was kind of rough on me because you build these relationships with these kids. You know, I try to make it a point throughout the whole week. So the way the camp is set up, you have a week of practice, and then there's a big game at the end. So the first day, some kids don't want to be there. They're like, Mom, why do you come to this? You know, they're kind of scared to be put out their comfort zone. And then by the end, you know, it's a tearful, sad goodbye on that next Sunday. You get to learn these kids and their personalities. And I like to make it a point to get to know each and every one of them. But we have usually about eight to ten players on that trip. So we have enough guys to go out and interact with the kids and just really get to know them. One of the cool things about that camp is it makes the kids feel like they're, they're normal for a change. If you came out to the camp or if anybody else came out to the camp that's an able-bodied person, they would be the ones that are finally different for that week. They come in, we're all the same. We get to share with them this community that, you know, hey, everything's okay. I can do it. That means you can do it. And hopefully our wounded warriors react like, like role models <clears throat> to these kids. They hopefully look up to us and like, wow, this guy's able to do this. There's nothing I can't do. So we instill to them this new set of confidence. And I see it every time, every kid, they're unsure of themselves. But then at the end of the week, they have this new swagger about them. And it's, it's so, so cool to see. You mentioned there was one young man who was ashamed. He always wanted to wear pants to hide the prosthetic. And then by the end of the week, he was like, mom, let's go get short. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, one of our kids, he was above the knee on one side, and he was one of the kids that gotten picked on in school. Kids are mean, they'll, they'll do whatever they have to do to fit in, and sometimes that's pick on somebody that's different. So he was subject to that. I don't think he fully understood why he was different. It wasn't something he asked for. And by the end of the camp, he went up to his mom. He's like, Mom, you know, let's go get some shorts. Like, I'm not, no, I'm not afraid to be an amputee anymore, basically. You know, so that's kind of the, the instilled confidence that I'm talking about. You know, they're, they're proud of who they are which, you know, there's really no reason for them not to be. But when you're treated different or picked on beforehand, that can really have an effect on, on your mind, your mental state. And we get to come in and mold that back to where it should be. And the cool thing is we have a community of kids. They come in as an individual, but they leave with 19 friends. And they, they come in and they probably never met an MPT in their life like them. So they feel isolated. They feel alone. And now they finally have somebody. They have their 19 other kids, but they also have 10 wounded warriors to talk to but that's not where it stops we're able to pay for a kid to come to camp a camper and also a guardian whether that be mom dad grandma grandpa whoever so it also 
it's almost a healing process or a learning process for the, the parents as well, seeing the different types of prosthetics that are out there and a chance for parents who have a kid with an amputation to kind of talk to somebody too. So, you know, it, it's, it goes both ways. It bridges all kind of gaps. It benefits the parents as well, which I didn't really think about until I just sat back and, and just reflected on the camp and what it did and what it meant to me. And I realized I saw these parents talking too. They, you know, they're talking about, hey, you know, where'd you get this prosthetic or what resources do you use to try to get things for your child? So it's, uh, it's good for everybody involved. And I, I didn't really understand the, the reach and focus of this until I really sat back and just reflected on it and realized how good it is. I mean, I, I don't know how else to describe it really. You described how some of the older kids really treated some of the younger kids with kindness and respect. You mentioned a young lady named Anna. Yeah, so one of the things I shared with you, uh, I think, last week, the way the camp is set up right now, and I touched on it a little bit earlier, was we have our 20 kids for the year, and that's all we can really do. And after they come, we almost have to say goodbye. And to me, that wasn't good enough. So this last year, 2017, we we're actually able to host our first alumni camp. Our annual camps, they're 20, and then you really can't come back as a repeat because we want other families to come and experience that. So we now have established kind of an alumni system. We're able to run an annual camp, which is the 20 new kids for the year. And then we're also going to host an alumni camp every year now, just for the kids to come back and meet some new ones that maybe weren't in their class. And the cool thing that I didn't really foresee is we got there and the older kids kind of treated the younger kids like a high school. The older kids acted like seniors. They're the leadership type. And then the younger kids kind of followed. The bat you were talking about, uh, this little girl named Anna, she actually was a double amputee below the knee. The first time I met her in Washington, D.C., that's where we held the camp that she was at. And the way she was growing, her body couldn't keep up with it. Her tendons were kind of stretching out too far, so they actually made the choice to amputate her right leg higher above her knee. And she actually had just gotten her prosthetic like a couple of weeks before we had our alumni camp, but she still was able to attend. And I remember it was her at bat. Um, she hits a, a ball of the middle. And this guy named Devin, Devin Jackson, picks up the ball. And he's one of our older kids. And this was a chance for Devin. This is our, our inner squad scrimmage. This is a chance for him to kind of be the star. All the parents are watching. We have some guests from the community that actually came out to watch. So, you know, we have a stadium full of people. And it's his chance to make a play, be a star, and have everybody congratulate him. And he actually let Anna have the base. You know, and it's not about, like, participation trophies or anything like that. You know, it meant a lot to Anna to actually be there and run it out and, and be safe. And he understood that, and I saw it in his eyes. You know, and it's not something that the coaches told him to do. It's not something, you know, he did it on his own. And I thought it was one of the coolest, it was one of the coolest things I've ever witnessed in my life. And that happened repeatedly. You know, that was one of the examples that I gave. But the older kids, the, the year one kids that came, you know, they took ownership. They had the pride of family. It looked like siblings playing together is what it looked like to me. Like I said, it wasn't to make everybody feel like they've won or anything like that. You know, it's really not about that. What I saw there was just leadership to the core. It was just selfless. And I give props to Devin, but I mean, there was multiple instances like that throughout the alumni camp. And it was just really cool to see. This stuff blows me away every time I see it and reflect and look back on it. I'm there during it and I might miss something, but the whole next week I'm reflecting on kind of what we did, what we could do better. And some of those things kind of dawn on me, and it's just kind of reignites that fire of why I do it. To be honest, I almost feel selfish doing it because I almost feel like I get more out of it than they do. That's a weird way to say it, but it's true. I feel 
good to be able to give back and to see that productivity out of the kids and just seeing their spirit kind of grow is amazing. Now, the next camp is scheduled for June 10 to the 17th at Southern New Hampshire University, right? Yeah, so this will be our annual camp. So we'll have 20 new families come into this. So we're expanding our Wounded Amputee softball team family by another 20. We've actually had 104 families come through, and this will be a chance to add to that. And then after this year, they'll, they'll be considered alumni and be able to come back to the camp. But Southern New Hampshire University is going to be our host this year. They've donated their hotel, and there's a AAA stadium, I think, or a AA stadium donated to us. The way the camp will set up at the end, I mentioned the inter-squad scrimmage. They'll be able to go out there on an actual professional field, and we'll have the big screen up. They'll be able to see themselves on the big screen making plays. It's going to be an awesome time. So your organization is a 501c3 nonprofit. That's correct. Yeah, we're a 501c3 nonprofit since 2011. And the name of the organization? We're called the Wounded Warrior Amputee Softball Team. If you just simply Google WWAST, it'll pop up. A lot of people get confused the term Wounded Warrior in the front of our name. They associate it with the Wounded Warrior Project. We're not at all. We're a separate 501c3 and this is our mission right here. Our mission is to instill hope and perseverance when we travel and play and that's just what we do with the game of softball but we also our funding goes back to our, our kids camp and that's really our main focus so that's what we do that's our mission we're not the one who project and if money was no object where would you take this organization if money was an issue i'd love to add a 13 and up camp i know we've missed some kids because of our our little rule a to 12 and kind of a cutoff point there's been some kids that turned 13 when we knew about them you know, we knew them when they were 12, but we couldn't get them in. So I'd, I'd love to add like a 13 and up or maybe like a high school age camp where we can actually focus on baseball and softball if they're playing in high school. One of the things I'd like to actually add as well is a, a bullying campaign. A lot of our kids are subject to bullying, and that's definitely something that we can do as players. We can talk to them. We can try to instill confidence. We can teach them to be proud of themselves. But kids are kids. They'll pick on you if you're different. Hopefully, one of the things we're doing is with the 13 up camp is maybe adding a gold star family to that. And wow. one of the things I'd like to do is bridge the gap between able body and dis disabled with kids with amputations. This last spring training we had, we were, we were down in Lakeland, Florida, and we actually had a kids clinic and it wasn't all amputees. You know, there were some amputees, but there was also some able bodied kids. And it was a really cool thing to bridge the gap between able body and a kid with an amputation. And the reason wow. I say that is because, you know, these, these kids are interacting with each other. So a kid that maybe has never seen a kid with an amputation, he's like, wow, that's actually pretty cool. Like they can still do what I can. And maybe that promotes them sticking up for somebody in the hallway that's getting picked on. One of the other things we'd like to do is also create a prosthetic fund. That would be a range of things. That would be the ability to get kids out to a prosthetist state if they can't afford the airfare or if they can't afford the leg itself, be able to do that kind of stuff to actually purchase a running leg for a kid to get out there and be active. I'm doing what I can to expand, but if money weren't an issue, that's that's where we'd be. Josh, I'm blown away by the things you're doing here, and I'm so happy to do whatever I can to help support you and get you the funds that you are looking for here. Anybody listening, contact Josh and help create more of these moments that he's describing. It's absolutely impressive to me. I always end the show with six quick-fire questions. Do you mind running through sure. them with me? Sure. Who are you thankful for today? I'm thankful for my brother, my twin. He's been with me through thick and thin. I'm thankful for my family as well. And what are you thankful for today? I'm thankful just to be able to walk. That might seem like a little thing, but I mean, everything that I get in the morning, I literally have to strap on some legs to do it and be active. 
So I'm thankful for that. And how do you fuel the fire within you? I do it through competition. That's how I've always worked. Even when I was in Walter Reed, I made it a competition. That's how I got through things. I set little goals for myself. When I was at Walter Reed, I was a double amputee. So I looked at the double amputees around me. I'm like, you know, I'm going to beat that guy. I'm going to beat his recovery time. And then it got to a certain point where the double amputees weren't good enough, and I had to chase the single amputees. So that's, that's what fuels me. What was one thing adversity taught you to value? Adversity taught me to value the time we have here, how fragile life is. My amputations, you know, that yeah, they're, they're something to overcome. But it also taught me to reflect and and use it in a way to, to serve others. And that's that's one thing. I mean, I can use that to, to teach other people and really continue beyond the service uniform. And that's always been one thing that I, I strive to do. And what are you doing today you never thought you could? One of the, <laughs> one of the things I'm doing today, I actually – it's probably not smart, but I still drive stick shift cars. And a funny story about that, when I initially got hurt, I remember looking at my legs. And first off, I was like, wow, I'm hurt. And literally the second thought that went through my mind is how I'm going to be able to drive my car <laughs> without feet. Uh, so, you know, that's one thing I never thought I'd be able to do again, but uh, I can. And, again, it's kind of that muscle memory kind of thing where, uh, you know, I'm, I'm able to do that. And it's figured it out. I adapt and overcome, and <laughs> I'm able to do it. Well, I did buy a truck that's got an automatic transition transmission now but you know it is what it is but i could still drive stick so that's one thing that i never thought i'd be able to do and then what are you going to do tomorrow that you never thought you could i'm going to snowboard tomorrow that's one thing that i i found out that i actually had a passion for in the hospital they let me go out and try this for the first time and i fell in love with it so you know that was beforehand i'd never be able to do if people want to learn more about you and your organizations where should they go they can they can google wwast uh, or wounded warrior mt softball team.org is the actual website on google uh, it has our homepage, calendar where we're going if you'd like to sponsor there's actually a, a tab on that you can kind of meet the team you can look us up on facebook the same thing the wounded warrior mt softball team my email is wwast just like the team my number 23 and then it's at gmail.com so again wwast 23 at gmail.com a bomb maker intended terror and death the bomb maker underestimated the warrior mind of this United States Marine who refused to be intimidated and refused to give up. Today he continues to serve by helping young American amputees who grapple with shame and intimidation. That bomb maker failed in his objective. That bomb maker had no understanding of the real significance of what America is. He only created an even more potent and powerful force for good upon this brilliant spinning earth. The American flag still waves and will continue to wave over baseball stadiums and homes and families and businesses and schools. When men and women like Josh Wege step up and serve, they are the finest America has to offer. They win the war on terror all day long with good.